On this episode of This Week in Linux, we're going to be talking about a lot of really cool things, some new releases from Firefox and Darktable. We've also got a bunch of distro news this time, and because this week we have news about Manjaro, Mabox Linux, that's just fun to say, Libra Elect, Clonezilla, Nutix, and Area Linux as well. So lots of different distro news. And we're also going to talk about what is happening with the open source community and how that we are collectively helping to fight the COVID-19 virus. Later in the show, we'll take a look at some security issues found for AMD and Intel hardware. And then we'll finish out the show with some great deals and the latest Humble Bundles. And also, I'm happy to say that I am not as sick as I was. I'm probably like 95% good, so this show is going to be a lot more energetic, and I'm going to be a lot more me, I guess. Uh, so all that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanel with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network, and this is your weekly source for Linux Good News. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. And I'm a big fan of DigitalOcean. I mean, we've talked about this in previous episodes in terms of like, you know, how much I like DigitalOcean. But I, you know, there's there's so many different awesome things about it. You know, it's easy to use. The dashboard is really simple. Like the remote console is awesome. Uh, but also they have over 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials to help you stay up to date with the latest open source software languages and frameworks. So you can get up to, you know, up to date on all kinds of different new tutorials and everything. But it's mostly like they say cloud agnostic, but there, you'll even even find tutorials for like desktop uses and stuff like that. It's not even it's cloud agnostic in the sense that you don't have to use DigitalOcean to find value, but you also don't even have to use a cloud service to find value from these tutorials. So check those out. And you can get all this plus access to the world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month. And you can actually get started with DigitalOcean for one for $100 free credit. $100 free credit. With, you can use that for two months for free by going to do.co slash DLN. Again, you can go to do.co slash DLN to get a $100 free credit. And thanks again to DigitalOcean for sponsoring This Week in Linux and the rest of the Destination Linux network. A first in the show this week is Firefox 74. And as you might know, I'm a fan of Firefox. If you're not aware, you can check out my video of the seven reasons why Firefox is my favorite browser. I'll have that linked in the show notes and also in the end screen at the end of the show. And also, uh, I'm working on another video. This is not relevant to the actual news, but I'm working on another video about container tabs for Firefox. I've actually been working on it for a little while, but when I got sick, it kind of totally destroyed my productivity. But that's coming in soon. Uh, within this week for sure. I'm not sure exactly how long it'll take me, but hopefully in just a couple days or so. But anyway, relevant to actual news, uh, Firefox 74 is uh, out and we have a lot of cool features that have been added to it. Uh, there's actually been an interest in like a lot of security things and privacy things that they've been added, which is always nice to see. They've actually improved the Lockwise service for security passwords and stuff like that. Uh, I don't personally use that. I like Bitwarden. You can also check out my video about Bitwarden. There's a lot of shameless plugs in this one. Sorry. So we have uh, another things that are updating Firefox support for importing bookmarks and history from a Microsoft Edge browser is actually Im improved. So this is, you know, why am I talking about this as a Linux, you know, uh, show? But it's because Microsoft Edge browser is, you know, why would anybody use it? People do actually use it to install Firefox. <laughs> That's why the importing is important. Anyway, 
There's also improvements to the add-ons because there's a, a thing where you could have external applications install add-ons from the Firefox system, but you wouldn't be able to uh, remove them directly from the add-ons manager. They have in, in, in implemented that, so you can now do that. And they've also blocked it from future uh, extensions being added from external applications. So if you wanted to do an external application add-on, you actually have to choose to do that rather than the application just doing it. And they've also done a lot of improvements to the Facebook container. So the Facebook container is an awesome feature of Firefox. Container tabs themselves are awesome, and it, like I said, I'm making a video about that directly, but the Facebook container is allows you to kind of like stop Facebook from tracking you because Facebook is like notorious for tracking you. And they, they'll even track people who don't have accounts, and they call those shadow profiles. So if you have a account or not you're still being tracked but with with a Firefox Facebook container you're actually able to kind of contain the nonsense of Facebook in its own little world so it still is tracking you it's just only tracking you on itself rather than following you around the internet because if you're not aware the like buttons and the uh, share on Facebook buttons and all those things are not just buttons to click and then all of a sudden you use this, use the function. They're also tracking, like they have tracking scripts built into them. So they are helping Facebook learn about you, whether you're on Facebook or not. And that's why it's awful. But the Facebook container allows it to be blocked. So you can actually have those things being blocked by this container. And anytime you go to Facebook or anything owned by Facebook, it just kind of like throws you into that container and make sure that Facebook isn't able to track anything other than what you want it to get. So by actually like using it and everything. So anyway, big fan of Firefox, big fan of that extension. And I'm also happy to see anytime there's a new release of Firefox, they always add new improvements and new privacy and security things. Like for example, this one, they have disabled uh, TLS 1.0 and 1.1, which have uh, security vulnerability issues. And they have now a requirement that you have a minimum of 1.2 TLS and sites that do not will show an error on the page. So we're actually going to be able to know like what site is supported and what's not. So that's, that's great. And they've also done a lot of other things, including some improvements to better privacy for uh, video and voice calls so that you have like the MDNS ICE cloaking has been able to uh, set up so that you can uh, cloak the IP address of the computer with a random ID with like WebRTC services and things like that so they won't know your actual IP. So really cool stuff like that. And also in the next version of Firefox 75, they're going to be implementing a flat pack for it. So anybody who wants to use uh, get updated versions of Firefox and don't want to rely on their repo being updated because sometimes the repos are updating quickly, sometimes they don't. And this way, if you want to use a flat pack, you can just get the update whenever they release one because it's going to be an official uh, flat pack. So that's really cool. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more about Firefox or Firefox 74 specifically release notes, I'll have a link in the show notes and also the links to the videos that I talked about. And yeah, so yeah, check out the show notes for the links. Up next in the show, Darktable 3.0.1 has been released. And if you're not aware, Darktable, the open source software, is a alternative to Adobe Lightroom. It's a free and open source photography application software that allows you to manipulate raw photo data and that kind of thing. And this latest version of 3.0.1 comes with new features, iterative improvements, and compatibility fixes. So it's actually kind of interesting because this seems like a small release because they just had 
3.0 or 3.0.0 and now this is 3.0.1 and that typically implies a very minor update but this has a lot of improvements and uh, compatibility fixes and also new features so it just it's a, it's a weird uh, version scheme also i guess in general version schemes and all software is, is a weird because sometimes we'll have like software that's zero point you know whatever 0.12 and 0.13 and etc etc and then it's like you never actually get to a 1.0 even for years so i guess version numbers don't really matter that much in terms of like what they actually mean so there's that moving on so there's a new color assessment mode and this is designed to ensure proper color perception based on the icc recommended color proofing conditions there's a focus peaking mode that has been added and this is available in the Lightroom and uh, light dark light dark light table and darkroom modes. The wavelet denoise profile has a new Y O U O V O mode. Oh, the all O's are zeros. Sure, the new mode makes it possible to denoise the chroma and luma noise in a single instance. The app now makes it possible to resize the left and right panels in the layout views using a mouse and making it easier to control like how you want your workflow to be and the positions of this decision will be remembered. So this might sound like a small uh, improvement, but you know there's a lot of people who have like a specific workflow and depending, depending on your monitor size, having this ability is pretty useful and allows you to control it and have more configurable. It also might even help you if you want to, if you do like, um, you know, if you have different devices rather than just a mouse so you like use like touchscreen or something like that it might be beneficial that way too so there's all kinds of new stuff they've also added new like loading screen tooltips in the module uh, on module in history they've also added some like uh, new LUT improvements uh, they've that custom border support for framing module standard variable support for watermark modules all kinds of stuff and I understand a percentage of this but I'm not really a photographer, so I don't have a full depth of what all this stuff means. If you do, please let me know in the uh, comments below or also in the uh, DLN forum thread. I'll have a forum thread about this particular episode, so let me know what you think is the best new feature in Darktable. I actually saw someone said that the the thing that they like the most about it is that the compatibility fixes has improved performance a lot. So that is definitely good to hear. So if you have any more in-depth information about this particular topic, please let me know. And if you want to see more about what happened in this release notes, I'll have a link to that in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a topic I don't really want to talk about because I'm not a medical professional or anything like that. So I don't really have any business talking about it, but I'm doing it because I want to let you know about something, how you can help to contribute to finding a solution to this gigantic problem of COVID-19, AKA the novel coronavirus. So first of all, I just want to talk to you about, I just want to let you know about certain things to be wary of, as well as just letting you know about things in general, about this specific thing about how you can help. So for example, folding at home is the thing that allows you to help with your, your own hardware. So you, it's a distributed computing project that was founded in 2000 at Stanford University to actually like do research for various different diseases and that kind of thing. So they had like stuff for cancer, they have stuff for ALS, Parkinson's, Huntington's, and more, including now they have ways to help with the COVID-19 discovery and stuff like that. So the computers use like simulations 
to understand a protein's moving parts. And once scientists have like a grasp on these atoms and how they work and move and interact, they can do things to create treatments and stuff like that. So the software basically uses your spare CPU and GPU cycles when you're not using your computer or you're not using intensive things. It can use it for this purpose to simulate protein folding and computational drug design. So this is actually really awesome that this exists. And if you want to participate, I'll have a link in the show notes to find out more about this. And there's also really, really cool ways that the open source community is helping to fight and other things like uh, Wired has an article about an open source tool called uh, NextStrain that essentially is used to keep track of like how the, the virus is, is, you know, evolving and, you know, going around the world and how it's, how it's being handled and how, uh, that help institutions and, and hospitals and things like that uh, analyze the data of like mutations and visualize the results and stuff like that. It's really cool that this is happening and it's really awesome that open source is you know being a fun, used so fundamentally in these kinds of things. So I wanted to just give them a you know uh, a, a thank you for doing all this stuff, right? And uh, for, and also folding at home is a really cool thing that you can use to help uh, as well. And I also want to let you know that there are evil people in the world that are using this as an example to spread malware. So there's this, you know, coronavirus map that you can see how it's going across the world, and it gives you details about how all the data and stuff like that. And jerks are using it to spread malware. So they just kind of embed a real map and also have a virus attached to it and stuff like that. So be careful if you're using Windows because it's mostly a Windows-related thing. And there are people who watch this show who have to use both Windows and Linux, as well as people who are interested in using Linux who watch the show to learn more about it and that kind of thing. So if you are still using Windows and or you use Windows in addition to Linux, then I want to let you know that there is this kind of horrid people around out that are trying to, you know, make money off of spreading malware through this kind of stuff. So there's that. But to bring it back to good stuff, there's an open source initiative called Open COVID-19, and this is an initiative to help coronavirus testing, and that it tries to promote and develop open source uh, method, method, methodologies to safely test the coronavirus pandemic. So this, this initiative is trying to potentially develop a community-driven procedure to safely test the presence of the virus. It can be seen on the giant Just One Giant Lab website which is a decentralized open research site and it's actually pretty cool cuz it's a, it's like a it's it's a innovation library sort of thing based on uh, in in Paris France and it facilitates a collaboration of opportunities for people with the relevant expertise to join and share in things related to you know for example in this case to tackle the coronavirus so i just wanted to let you know about some stuff like this and how if you want to talk uh, you want to help with it you can check out the folding at home thing i have a link to the folding at home as well as an article from jason evangelo who wrote an article uh, who's a part of the destination linux network for the linux for everyone podcast he did an article on forbes to talk about this particular piece of software so you want to learn more about that i'll have a link to that as well so this is um the best i can do on this topic and we're going to move on now up next in the show, we're going to move on from some crazy topic and stuff to some awesome topics related to the Pine Book and the Pine Phone and the Pine Everything because Pine 64 is awesome. And they're making great, great products, and I can't wait to get my hands on everything. So, first of all, 
uh, Manjaro has been announced that, well, Pine has announced that the Manjaro distribution, uh, specifically the KDE Plasma Edition, will be the default OS for the Pinebook Pro going forward, which is pretty awesome uh, because they didn't really have a default. They kind of like, you know, just let you choose which one, but now they have decided that the, Man the Manjaro KDE version will be the one going forward. I'm a fan of Plasma, as you probably know, and I think it's really cool because Manjaro's been putting a lot of work into supporting the Pine products, specifically the Pinebook Pro and also the Pine Phone because that's pretty interesting. It's like uh, they don't have an actual phone version of their operating system, but they're still making support for it, and I think they're using like Plasma Mobile or something. Anyway, pretty cool that they're doing that. And they also said, Pine said that the Pinebook Pro pre-orders for the next batch will be starting on March 18th, so just a couple days from now, and they expect to ship those in early May. And the, there's a lot of other cool things, like, for example, the mainline kernel for the Linux kernel of 5.7 will have mainline support for the Pinebook Pro. And there's also some improvements to the when they're, the Pinebook Pro is going to be shipping with the, as I said, the Manjaro KDE edition, but they're going to be shipping with the latest kernel of 5.6, because 5.7 is not out yet. And the 5.6 kernel has support for some you know crucial things like USB-C charging, USB-C video output, and compatibility with like USB-C docks and stuff like that. So that's pretty cool. And all kinds of other things are happening, including some Pine, Pine phones development support uh, improvements for uh, new OSs and features that are that can be found on the wiki. And they also had like this new interesting thing about the forum. They talked about how they're having a new flashing system for the the storage, so you can put the uh, the flashing stuff for an OS on it, and then you, it's basically just making it easier to flash an, an operating system onto the uh, Pine phone because it was a little bit more difficult than at the time or before this, and they're making it easier to do it now, which is awesome, and I love to hear that. They've also have they're saying that they're going to have these uh, soft and hard protective cases for the Pine phone in store in the, the Pine store soon, which is pretty cool because it's kind of weird how some phones don't offer a case themselves and you have to find a third-party thing so i really like the fact that they're taking into you know, the consideration that they need to have a case because you know people drop phones i drop phones if i didn't have a case i'd probably break every phone i had but luckily cases exist and the pine phone has one of them as well and i also had gave some information about uh the pine time which you're not aware is it's a smart smartwatch that is like $25 whenever it's not out yet, but when it comes out, it'll be like $25 that pine 64 is making, which is awesome. And they're giving examples of like how they're making improvements to the OSs that are coming together for the pine time, which is really awesome to hear too. So I can't wait to get all this stuff. And if you'd like to learn more about it, I have a link to the uh, release announcements from pine 64 in the show notes below. Speaking of Manjaro, up next in the show, we're going to talk about a fork or derivative of Manjaro called Mabox Linux. And I just, I love the name because it's so, it's like a, it's fun to say, Mabox. It's Mabox Linux. And <laughs> it's a Manjaro-based distribution that uses Openbox. So Manjaro, M-A, Openbox, the box part comes there. I don't know if that's actually where the name comes from, but that's what I think it is. And it's fun to say, Mabox Linux. Anyway. So the latest version update of Mabox Linux is 20.02, and this has the uh, 4. Point, or 5.4 LTS kernel for support with various hardware that relates to that. And also they, they have like some uh, improvements to Openbox and how they do things, like the side panels are based on uh, JG, or JG menu, 
and this is a new structure. So the new menu now allows for searching and you can start typing when the menu is active. So it's kind of like a, you know, adding some polish that DEs have that, you know, a lot of window managers don't really have and uh, adding this so that, you, you know, people who want to use OpenBox have this nice polished edition as well. So this is pretty cool. And it also supports, of course, the packages that Manjaro provides. And it's also it might be worth mentioning as well that the graphic package manager Pamac, which uh, offers optionals access to the AUR, uh, is available and also has a, a support for snap packages. So uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, Mabox Linux, if you are interested in checking out uh, Manjaro but want to use OpenBox, then maybe check out Mabox Linux. I just like saying I don't I've said it like multiple times, and it's just fun to say Mabox Linux. Anyway, if you want to check it out, I have a link in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about LibreELEC. Now, it doesn't have as fun of a name to say, but it is a pretty awesome distribution. It is basically an appliance distribution for Kodi Media Center. So LibreELEC is a short for Libra Embedded Linux Entertainment Center. It's actually a fork of OpenELEC. You might have seen people talk about OpenELEC and referring in terms of like Kodi support or Kodi uh, appliances and that kind of thing. But OpenELEC kind of went to like eh, weird, not good situation. Anyway, LibreELEC was a fork of that and it is a much better thing in my opinion because it has better has faster updates, it gets the newer versions of Kodi faster and they they do support and like uh, bug fixes and stuff like that faster. So anyway, LibreELEC definitely check it out. It is pretty cool. And this 9.2.1 is the first major update in the the Leia ser, or Leia ser series based on Kodi 18 Leia. And it adds support for the WireGuard VPN protocol, which is really cool. It actually uh, improves the support for the Raspberry Pi 4 board computer, single board computers. And it also adds some improvements to, uh, they actually added a, a new parameter. I'm not going to go into the details of what the parameters is because that, anyway, but that doesn't matter what it's actually called. But the, what it does is enable the 4K video playback support, which is pretty awesome. Now, there's, it's still pretty rough around the edges in terms of like the compatibility of the 4K video support, but it's really awesome that it's there and that they're continuing to work on improving that. So very, very cool. There's also some improvements to the Raspberry, Pi, Raspberry Pi 4 devices, like the HEVC decoding support has been improved. Then they've actually done some improvements to uh, 1080p playback. So all kinds of different stuff like that. And a lot of other things like they're, you know, they're making improvements to different support for various different devices and overall. It's really cool. I'm a big fan of LibreELEC, as I kind of implied that earlier, but I really like LibreELEC. It's a really awesome way to do uh, Kodi on your system. It makes it super simple to actually set up a Kodi appliance. You can have like, uh, you know, get a Raspberry Pi, get a case, like a really nice case like Flirk, which by the way, if you never heard of it, Flirk or F-L-I-R-C is a really cool uh, product that they have. They make this like remote control thing for, uh, uh, you know, Kodi, but they also have a Pi uh, case that is really nice, looks super slick, like super professional, looks pretty awesome. Anyway, check that out too. I have a link in the show notes for that. But I also uh, want you to check out LibreElect if you're interested in Kodi because I'm a big fan of Kodi as well. I've actually made some of my own projects based on Kodi. And I think that uh, if you want to use an open source media center, Kodi is a fantastic option. And if you want a really easy way to set up a Raspberry Pi to use Kodi and have like access to like some because Kodi is really is not meant to be used as a appliance in terms of like its own self-contained operating system 
but that's where Libre comes in and solves that. So anyway, if you'd like to check it out, I have a link to the Flirk stuff as well as the, um, you know, Libre itself release notes for 9.2.1 in the show notes below. So up next in the show is the housekeeping section. And first of all, we're going to do a sickness update. I'm still technically sick, but I feel much, much better. And I wanted to thank everyone who sent me well wishes in the comments and in the emails and the uh, DLN forum and all that. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm actually about 95% good now. So I, as you maybe can tell, I am a lot more, you know, myself in this episode so uh, I'm really happy to be back at mostly full capacity, 95% capacity, I guess. And it also means that I am going to be doing a lot more content on this channel. I'm actually, I was also planning to do a bunch of content for the past couple of weeks. And then I just got like, you know, it just knocked me out. So I could only do a little bit. It was even like a couple of days I couldn't talk. So not being able to talk kind of hinders doing podcasting and doing videos and stuff. So I, in order to do the last episodes, I had to like, you know, just deal with like cough syrup and throat lozenges and stuff the entire time. And it was, it wasn't fun, but I got through it and that's important because I still wanted the show to happen regardless if I'm sick or not. So there you go, but I'm much better and I uh, hope you l- are looking forward to the rest of the content that's coming this week. I have at least one more video coming out. I don't know if that's the only one that's coming out, but at least one and I am super excited. Another thing I'm excited about is Library. So Tux Digital and This Week in Linux is now on Library. So Library describes itself as a secure, open, and community-run digital marketplace. Essentially, it's a competitor to YouTube, and it also has other stuff more than just video. You can also post like blog posts and things like that on the, on the platform. But it's really cool because it's based on blockchain technology, and it's really interesting because it has its own, like, it has a monetary system. Even though that's not the purpose of it, it has a monetary system so that you can like, just, like tip people and help people improve their you know, gr- uh, growth on the platform more than just subscribing and following and that kind of thing. But you can also help them make money on the platform, which is really cool. And you also earn these LBC or library credits automatically just by using the platform. So when you watch stuff, they'll give you like a daily watch credits bonus and kind of stuff. So you can actually get content and you can get these credits to tip creators basically automatically just by using the the platform, which is a really, really, really cool idea. And there's also like different achievements and reward things that you can do. So you can go to like a reward section and there's different tasks that you can complete to get even more credits to then help out creators more and more. So really, really, really cool platform. And in fact, I've actually contributed code to the library platform uh, since implementing it for the channel. So it's pretty serious at this point. Uh, But also there's something even more pretty cool that we've recently done on Destination Linux. So be sure to check out episode 164 of Destination Linux because we had Jeremy Kaufman, the CEO and founder of Library, on for an interview. And it was really cool. We learned all kinds of stuff about Library. We learned about how the blockchain works different from other things, how the currency was structured in many ways. It's a really good interview. I mean, I'm a little bit biased because it is my show and, you know, whatever, but I also think is really good information about library. If you've never heard of it, you should definitely check it out. I think it's much better than the other alternatives in terms of like YouTube alternatives and like free speech related uh, platforms because it's like it provides a better infrastructure overall and it's just really smooth how it works in so many many ways. 
and uh, I think it's better than like peer tube and bit shoot and stuff like that. So check it out if you're interested. Uh, for sure, check out library.tv to learn more. Oh, first of all, before you go, because we actually had some comments on the video about library, and I wanted to, to address something. You don't have to download the library app. You can, and by downloading it, you're actually helping the uh, platform by seeding the content so the, the, the main servers don't have to do everything. It allows you to participate in the same way that if you download an ISO through a torrent, you can help people get those torrent or those, those ISOs easier without having to have the servers be involved. It's just kind of that kind of thing. It help, You can help the community by using your bandwidth and stuff to let people watch videos that way rather than having the company uh, facilitate it all. So that's just why if you want to do that, there you go. But you don't have to do that. You actually can just go to library.tv and watch the content there and you know it's just basically the same kind of experience as watching stuff on youtube you just go to the website go to the search field find the content you want or go to tuxdigital.com library to find all the content there or destinationlinux.org or destinationlinux.network library to get the content for the entire network so there's that but anyway Definitely check out the interview with Jeremy Kaufman. I think it's a really, really fun interview. He's also a Linux user, so we talked to him about that as well as like his experience and journey through Linux and that kind of thing. So definitely check it out. It's totally worth it. And another thing that's totally worth it is becoming a patron of Tux Digital and the This Week in Linux podcast. So if you want to help make this show possible, then consider becoming a patron of Tux Digital. Because by becoming a patron, you are directly helping me finance the creation of this show and spending more time to make content on the channel as well, not just the podcast. And you also get special rewards like joining me in the new monthly patrons chat live stream that we're doing for the Destination Linux Network. So you can become a patron of Tux Digital and join me as well as the other creators in the live stream for patrons so basically the way it works is that we have a chat a zoom chat where everybody can every all the patrons can join and have a conversation with the creators on dln and then we live stream that to youtube and twitch and stuff like that so people can actually participate in the chat section on the websites but if you want to participate on the on-camera stuff and actually in the conversation directly you need to be a patron so there's that's a really cool reward i think and we're going to be doing that this coming Saturday on March 21st. So if you want to be a you want to participate in that live stream and that patron chat, be sure to become a patron of Tux Digital because it's totally worth it, and I think you will enjoy it. Also, I want to thank quickly the patrons of Tux Digital. We have 80 patrons right now of Tux Digital, and I want to thank you so much for helping make this content possible. It's amazing that so many people are helping me do it. I don't I don't really know how to describe how much I appreciate that, but it is a lot. So thank you. Thank you very much. And um, I guess we'll just get back to the show. But first, before we do that, uh, definitely check out Destination Linux Network to find all the great content on the network because there is a lot of it. Up next in the show is the latest release of CloneZilla Live 2.6.5-21 has been released. So... Uh, see, again, the whole weird versions thing. Anyway, Clones of the Live is an open source tool for disk cloning, data recovery, disk imaging, and deployment for systems. Now, it's Clonezilla has actually been around for a while, and it's not necessarily just for the live version. So Clonezilla Live is, or Clonezilla is the tool, and Clonezilla Live is the operating system based on the tool, and it's also based on Debian, and it ha it's a really cool solution to be able to have like a dedicated purpose for that. 
of the disk cloning and data recovery and disk imaging and that all that kind of stuff. And the latest version is now updated to support the kernel 5.4.19, and it is now using the Debian SID repositories. Uh, so several pack packages have been added as well, including the DCFLDD forensics and security tool, just rolls off the tongue right there. The IOTOP tool for uh, IO input output monitor tool, uh, the MTR tiny trace route utility, the NVMe CLI command line NVMe management program, uh, the TMUX terminal multiplexer, uh, scrub for writing patterns on disk file, and S3QL for mounting Swift and S3 cloud storage. These names are. Anyway, Bluetooth support was also implemented, and a few packages have been removed for streamlining. So some of the, uh, these things, like are a CloudFuse and Archive Mount, as they've been they haven't been maintained for quite some time and require some outdated versions of Fuse. So they're going to be they remove that to make sure that the it's like a more streamlined and better performance for the system. So that's pretty cool. And if you'd like to learn more about Clonezilla Live, I'll have a link to this in the show notes below. And I'm a big fan of it, so be sure to check it out. Up next in the show is some more distro news. As I said, we talk, we're going to talk about a lot of distro news this episode, and we still have two more left. And both of these distributions are actually based on Linux from scratch, or LFS if you like initialisms. So Newtigs 11.4 has been released, and this is pretty interesting because they have like this flexible approach to Linux from scratch. They have this new, they have this custom concept of like collections and group packages and stuff. I mean, group packages have been done many times in other distributions, but they, their collection system is also interesting too. So it's a it's an interesting approach to Linux from scratch. And they've updated their uh, packages, like 1,150 packages have been updated. They actually still support 32-bit version of their ISO if, for some reason, you still have 32-bit hardware. Now, I'm not saying 32-bit libraries should go away. They should stay because we still need support for gaming and all kinds of stuff like that. But the hardware? I mean, yeah, eh, it's okay if that goes away because that because right, that'd be like super ancient hardware, like uh, 15 years old hardware now. You know. It, Anyway, if you have 32-bit hardware and you don't, you can't upgrade your like entire system, you could get a Raspberry Pi because that'd be better performance. Just saying. Anyway, so they've updated their 32-bit version to have a 4.9.206 kernel. The 64-bit uh, version has the 4.19.108 kernel. See these version things. And there's quite a few package upgrades, including Xorg, Mate, XFCE, and KDE Plasma Desktop. So if you're in the, in the market for using Linux from scratch and you don't want to go to the super hardcore of actually building Linux from scratch, because by the way, Linux from scratch, if you're not aware, is not a distribution necessarily. It is a book that teaches you how to build a Linux distribution from scratch, basically. So... It's quite a lot to do because people like to make jokes about how Arch Linux is hardcore and then they go like, well, Gen 2 is even more hardcore. And then like basically Linux from scratch is the most that you could possibly do. And if you don't, if you want to have something like that, but you want to have a little bit of stuff done for you, then Nutix is something to check out. And another distribution to check out if you're interested in something based on LFS, and that is Aria Linux. I'm not sure if you pronounce it that way or not, but I'm going with it. Aria Linux 2.4 was released recently, and it is based on LFS, Linux from scratch, 
and also BLFS. I didn't mention that in the previous one, but Nutix is as well. BLFS is also is called is beyond Linux from scratch, and it's more of a. They're both books that are help you build out a system based on Linux, but you know from scratch. But it's got more stuff into it, and kind of it's a more complete approach rather than like the bare bones style of LFS. But anyway, Aria Linux is a distribution that has more up-to-date packages, it seems, versus Nutix. So if you look at the different versions, uh, like I said in Nutix, the latest version of the kernel was 4.19.108, and the latest version of the kernel in Aria Linux is 5.5.8. And they also have the latest version of GNOME, which is 3.36, and that only came out last week. So... It's, they seem to be more up to date in terms of like package availability and that kind of thing. And they also have support for KDE Plasma 5, XFCE, Mate, and GNOME 3, like I said, which is the default. Uh, so this is pretty interesting. They also have a approach that's kind of like, you know, giving UI a, approach to package management where they have their own package system called ALPS, which is like the uh, ARIA Linux uh, package system. And they have a new UI called Alps UI, which is a GUI application that's similar to Synaptic that allows you to manipulate stuff through a GUI to work with the Alps package system. So that's pretty cool. And it is also worth noting that while it is the more up-to-date packages, there is, there is some kind of drawbacks to it in terms of like they don't have upgradability yet. So and you, if you want to, when you do from big, the big upgrades from one version to another one, you have to do like a full fresh install apparently, but they're working on getting the upgrades implemented so that RE Linux will end up becoming a rolling release distro based on LFS, which is pretty interesting because I don't think that there are many of those. Like there are multiple distributions based on LFS, but I don't think any of them are rolling release based. Um, but anyway, if you'd like to learn more about RE Linux and Linux from scratch, I suppose, I'll have a link to those in the show notes below. Up next in the show is some security news. Everybody loves security issues, right? They're fun. Anyway, they're not, this is not actually related to Linux. This is related to hardware security. So we have two of those. One is for AMD and the other one is for Intel. So we're going to start with AMD alphabetically just because. And this is related to the takeaway security issue. There's two new attacks called Collide Plus Probe and Load Plus Reload. So researchers from Graz University of Technology, University of Rennes, I'm, I, I butchered that probably, CR, the CNRS uh, institution, also the IRISA, and some other unaffiliated uh, researchers have released a paper with a security about the security issue, called, and they call that paper takeaway. And this stuff affects AMD CPUs going back to 2011, and it also, they say, affects a lot of them. The research team said that they notified AMD of the two issues in August 2019, but the company has not released microcode to update and patch these things. They actually AMD claims that these are not new speculation-based attacks, effectively saying they don't need to do this, but the research team disagrees with that. The research team says that knowledge of these functions is the basis of our attack technique, and knowing these functions allow the researchers to create a map of what is going on inside the L1D cache way predictor and probe if the mechanism was leaking data or clues about what the data might be. So these two attacks are somewhat similar to the classic flush plus reload and the prime plus probe attacks, 
which have been exploited in the past by other researchers to leak data for Intel CPUs, but not AMD CPUs, because it's kind of interesting. So primarily because the way AMD CPUs handle cache data is different from the way Intel handles it. So it's pretty interesting. But also the researchers said that they used the Collide Plus probe attack to reduce the entropy of different ASLR implementations. ASLR stands for Address Space Layout Randomization and is a security mechanism used to randomize and cloak the locations of where code executes inside of a CPU's memory. So if an attacker breaks ASLR, they can predict where code executes and plan for the other attacks. So these attacks require planting malicious code on the same machine. However, the attack is also portable to the web via malicious JavaScript loaded in a browser. So it could it does have some issues. It is it, it there I, I don't know, you know, AMD saying it's not a big deal. The researchers are saying it is a big deal or not a huge deal or anything. They they actually were asked by CNET if this was the same level of Spectre and Meltdown, and they said no, not even close. Spectre and Meltdown have the ability to leak a lot of data, and it was like genuine data, whereas this has a small leak of metadata, so it's not anywhere near as bad, but they still think it's worth patching. And AMD says there's not these are not new speculative-based attacks, and they should be mitigated already through the previous patches that were already done through the speculative execution side-channel vulnerabilities. So, I don't know if they're going to be releasing a patch or not. It seems like they're not, and hopefully they're right about it already being mitigated, but I don't know, because I'm not a security researcher. But I thought it was an interesting topic, so there you go. If you'd like to sh share your comments about this and in the comments below or on the DLN forum, please do so. I'd like to learn more about it for sure. And uh, yeah, so links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is Intel's security issue, and specifically this is called the Load Value Injection Issue, or LVI. And this vulnerability was released this week, and they say that it is believed to principally attack Intel CPUs with SGX, so basically like Skylake or newer. New, newer Intel CPUs with some hardware mitigations to recent vulnerabilities are said to only be partially vulnerable to the LVI, while Ice Lake appears to be the first generation after Skylake not to be affected. So this is actually pretty bad because of the, like, it's, it's not good to have vulnerabilities in general, but the mitigations to solve this one, there's some, some performance issues, but we'll get to that in a second. So bypass, they, they say that the researchers say that LVI bypasses all existing mitigations against transient execution attacks, such as Meltdown, Spectre, Foreshadow, Zombie Load, Riddle, and Fallout. They say that we show LVI is especially relevant in the context of Intel SGX, where LVI are, may arbitrarily hijack transient execution in a victim enclave and ultimately uh, leak arbitrary secrets, breaking confidentiality guarantees in the Intel SGX ecosystem. They say that LVI unifies the transient execution research landscape by applying gadget-driven techniques from the, spectrum, the Spectre world to reversely exploit prior meltdown type data leakage. So Spectre and Meltdown were like the original uh, vulnerabilities that were found that created this huge speculative execution vulnerability not like madness. And it's probably going to continue. I bet you there's going to be at least a couple more in the next couple of years or so. I, I, when, I, when this first came out, I made a prediction that it was just going to continue over and over and over. And so far, it is still happening. And I still think that there's going to be more found. 
just because speculative execution is such a complicated thing that is, you know, was created in like the 60s that undoubtedly they were not taking into consideration the possibilities of how powerful the hardware will become and how they will be using it. But anyway, that's a different topic. I've talked about this stuff in the past, so I won't go into the super in-depth on that thing. But, you know, if you're interested, let me know and we can I'll do maybe do a video about it. But the LVI furthermore marks the end of transparently patching meltdown type processor vulnerabilities in CPU microcode because the LVI necessitates expensive software updates to serialize the processor pipeline and disable speculation after potentially every load operation. So while Intel has publicly stated they don't believe the LVI attack to be practical, so most people wouldn't do this, one of their open source compiler wizards did go ahead and add mitigation options to the GNU's assembler as a part of the GCC toolchain. So they're, it's, not, it's not as bad as Spectre and Meltdown in the terms of the likelihood that someone use it. I mean, it's bad in the sense that it bypasses those mitigations and it's actually not a good you know, thing to have a vulnerability like this, but it's not as practical as Spectre or Meltdown to be able to do, so it's not as incentive, as much incentive to do it. But there are mitigations for it. Michael Larabelle is, the, is, is from Pharonics, and he did some benchmarking to test the performance of this mitigation. And he says that the performance impact from these LVI mitigation switches are likely the largest we've seen since we began benchmarking the security mitigations following Spectre and Meltdown. He says that benchmarks were done on the Intel Xeon E31275V6, which is a KB Lake server, and he says that OpenSSL signing performance dropped to nearly a tenth of its original performance when making use of the L fences after loads, which is part of the mitigation. Google's level DB or level database was significantly impacted with operations taking nearly twice as long. Postgres, Postgres QL or Postgres uh, performance was also hit significantly. A number of crypto workloads were tested given the SGX aspect of LVI. So all the crypto benchmarks are fairly brutal with ML fence after load in particular. They say that, uh, Michael also says that SM Hasher as a hash function quality speed benchmark saw its mitigated performance at just 10% the original speed pre-mitigations. So 90% loss. And it says that John the Ripper is another workload where the increased L fence usage can lead to 10% the original performance. So Michael Larbro also notes that the results of these benchmarks are quite staggering, but fortunately most users probably don't need to rebuild all of their software packages for these assembler-based mitigations. It may make sense for any security-sensitive applications and those running public services, potentially untrusted code, and particularly those interacting with the Intel SGX, but there are differing views currently over the real-world prospects of the LVI attacked vector and how important it is, and he says at least that would be the guidance for now. So he says that it's worrisome, but you know it's not like it's not a hundred percent like awful like the Spectre and Meltdown stuff. But he also says what's worrisome is that if there are any more broad transient execution flaws based on LVI to be discovered, that could end up necessitating this increased L fence usage to become more widespread, considering how we have seen these micro-architectural vulnerabilities build up over time. As in, for example, the zombie load also had zombie load version 2, and Spectre had Spectre version 1, Spectre version 1.2, 1.1, version 2, and it just kept going. 
So that's what he's referring to there. But at least for now, he says the most current uh, concern, the most concerned security conscious end users should be using this mitigation options or enterprises where Intel SGX is more widely used and or if you're using public cloud. He says LVI isn't gauged as a very practical attack, at least according to Intel and some university researchers, but Bitdefender, who co-discovered the LVI, say it could be used as a basis for future real-world attacks. And as shown by these benchmarks, the performance is another troubling setback if these options need to be used liberally when compiling software. So hopefully they're correct that it's not very practical to use, because if they're wrong, that is a massive problem to lose 90% performance. So hopefully that is not incorrect, that it is just impractical, so it's not that big of an issue. So there you go. LVI load value injection. Not good. Potentially not awful. So I guess that's good. If you'd like to learn more about this, I have a link to the in the, the website for the injection, uh, the load value injection vulnerability, as well as the link to the benchmarks and articles that uh, Michael Larabelle did for Pharonics in the show notes below. So I wanted to end the show on a positive note, so we're going to talk about the humble bundles that are available. So bringing back a segment from a previous episode, this segment is the affiliate links to help this show news. So first of all, we're going to talk about five bundles, but we're going to start with Just Drive bundle. So Just Drive is a racing game bundle, and there's two games that are native to Linux on it. One is Dirt 4, and the other one is Road Redemption. I actually like uh, the idea of Road Redemption because it's like a re-envisioning of Road Rash. I haven't played it that much, but I do like the idea of a Road Rash game based, like a new version of it, like a modern Road Rash, because I was a big fan of Road Rash in the past, you know, like in the 90s and stuff. Anyway, it's a motorcycle racing game, if, if you don't know what Road Rash is. There's also uh, a lot of games that are not native that are in this bundle, but they have varying degrees of support on Proton. So we're going to talk about that in the order of best supported, which is platinum relate, rated, rated, and that's NASCAR Heat 4. Then there's also Gold Games. The Gold Tier has three games, Project Cars, Project Cars 2, and MXGP, the Motocross Grand Prix game. There's also two, two, uh, three other games. One is Silver, MotoGP 15, and the other two are Bronze, which basically means it doesn't work that well. That's uh, WRC 7, World Rally Championship, and Assetto Corsa. I don't know what that... Anyway, racing game, obviously. If you're interested in checking out any of these games, be sure to check the, the link in the show notes because this is an affiliate link that helps uh, the show continue to grow and to continue to be made because it gives me a small percentage commission that you can actually decide if you, you can decide whatever you want it to be based on the slider system that they have. So you can make it smaller, bigger, whatever you want, and that's pretty cool. And if you would like to check out the racing games, I would very much appreciate it if you were to use that affiliate link in the show notes. Uh, and let's move on to the next bundle. And the next bundle is the code starter kit or the coding starter kit. So there's a lot of different things in here. There's, you know, there's the Lorem Ipsum book for it's a story about computer science and other improbable things. There's the official Scratch Junior book to help people help kids learn to to code using Scratch. Uh, 25 Scratch 3 games for kids. That's a weird way of saying it. Uh, a playful guide to coding. Build your own websites, a comic guide to HTML, CSS, and WordPress. Make your own Scratch games, Super Scratch Programming Adventure, 
and a lot more, including learning robotics for Raspberry Pi and Microbit for mad scientists. I like that. And there's, there's a lot of other things like JavaScript for kids, electronics for kids, all kinds of things, even like coding with Minecraft. So that's pretty interesting. Well, there's a lot of cool stuff that you can do in Minecraft. And there's a lot more in, in this bundle, but uh, I'll just let you check out the link in the show notes below, which again, affiliate link. But if you're interested in learning to code or helping your kids learn to code, this might be a good option for that. And there's also another books bundle that is called literally Learn to Code. And it is it has bite-sized HTML, CSS, Python books. It has intro to game development with Unity, intro to Java for mobile development, a big complete beginner's guide to JavaScript course. There's a, a stuff about a NumPy. There's a lot of different things, reading data from APIs with Python, and many, many more. Kotlin, uh, that's a, a framework. Uh, all kinds of stuff for like rep, even like uh, it, it varies from web design to game development to uh, mobile development, all kinds of stuff. And if you'd like to learn more about that, I have a link to that in the show notes below. And also, there is two more. One is called Land a Tech Job 2.0. And this is an interesting thing because every book is a for dummies book. You know, it says coding with JavaScript for dummies, job search letters for dummies job searching with social media for dummies and it just continues on and on but it's basically uh, t- suggestions of how to find you know jobs in the in the IT and the uh, you know the the networking world and the programming world and that kind of thing so if you're interested in that kind of thing I'll have a link to that one in the show notes below as well and finally business intel books which is bo- mostly about like you know uh, learning different things about how to use different stuff like uh, Microsoft Power BI quick start guide uh, Tableau, uh, I don't know. It's it's it seems like it'd be pronounced Tableau, uh, but I'm not sure. But it's like a desktop certification associates exam guide for that. Uh, mastering Microsoft Power BI again, hands-on data visualization, building interactive uh, dashboards with Power BI, lots of Power BI stuff. And if you're interested in learning any of that stuff, we'll have a link in the show notes below. And that's it for the humble bundles. Uh, section or the segment that I like to call the affiliate links to help this show news. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the Tux Digital channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, sponsors, and many more. You can learn more about this by going to tuxdigital.com slash contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. This shirt is a shirt I that I made and designed to convey the message that whether or not you know Linux is there, it probably is. That's why it has Tux blended into the background like that. And also, you can contribute without any cost to you if you'd like by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, Humble Bundle, and many more by going to tuxdigital.com slash affiliates. And if you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux as I'm a co-host of that show. And this latest episode you check out for sure, as I talked about in the housekeeping, where we have the interview with library CEO and founder, Jeremy Kaufman. It's really awesome. And also be sure to check out this next upcoming episode where we have Emma Marshall from System76 on as a guest host, which was really cool too. So check that out for sure. And, you know, thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital and the Destination Linux Network. And as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.